Why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read Acts 2, verses 36 to 42. Acts 2, 36 to 42. Let all, Peter says on the day of Pentecost to all those present, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said, and, or, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and you can be seated. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for your word that you've given us, and we thank you for this church, and as we bring to a conclusion this discussion of the vision for our church, I pray that these uh, verses, in particular Acts 2.42, would be cemented on our hearts. Uh, that verse has served as a blueprint for our church, and really we see it as a foundation in the early church, and pray that it would be a foundation for our church as well, that as we focus on those four areas, those disciplines, that we would be a spiritually healthy church. And I pray that it would be a vision that's adopted uh, by all those in the congregation, Lord, that we would be of one accord and that we would be convinced that this, these are the areas of great focus for us because we see them as great focus in the early church. And I thank you for each person here, Lord, and just pray that uh, should there be anything that I've labored over this week, that's not from you, that it'd be discarded, but anything from you, Lord, and anything else you'd have me share that perhaps isn't in my notes, you would bring to mind. We thank you for this time. Pray you can be pleased with it, uh, glorified by it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, just to give you a little direction for the following Sundays, this will be our last Sunday discussion, the vision of the church. Uh, we'll bring it to an end this morning, and there hasn't been anything else particularly pressing on my heart. There were times like when we were going through the situation with COVID where I thought we would talk about trial some, or things happened with my back, or that I thought we wanted wisdom to navigate through the season we were in, but there's nothing else that's really pressing on me, and so I want to resume my verse-by-verse studies in Luke's gospel. And so if you want to prepare for next Sunday, you can go ahead and read Luke 12:35 and the following verses. That's where we're going to go ahead and uh, pick up, resume, because that's where we left off about 13 years ago, okay? <laughs> so as you can tell, we're looking at the early church, and this is pretty much as early as you can get, right? Because Pentecost is, is generally regarded among scholars as the birth of the, the church itself. <clears throat> and I want to explain why I like this approach when considering the vision of our church. Think of the buzzwords that you might commonly hear associated with the church today. Uh, people will say things like, we want to be contemporary, right? Or we want to be relevant, or you'll hear words like postmodern. And sometimes when people talk about this for the church using those words, they'll say things like, we need to reinvent ourselves. Uh, we need to do something new. We need to do something radical. And I pretty much feel the opposite of that. I feel like instead of trying to be original, we should try to be unoriginal. We should go back to what God's Word says. We should look at what He's already written, and we should try to do that. We should see what He already said the church should do or should be, and then try to focus on doing that or being that ourselves. 
When I was going over the sermon with Katie, she said this would actually make us original, right? If enough churches depart from doing that, then you can be original by trying to hold to the conservative foundation in, in God's word, whether, uh, no matter how unattractive it might be. So listen to what God said to the Jews through the prophet Jeremiah in his day when they started to depart from the foundation that he gave them, that God had given the Jews. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And so I think we would be wise to look for that ancient path, look for where the good way is to walk in it. We can find uh, rest for our souls. And as I reflected on this verse, I was kind of um, wondering why would it be restful to find the ancient path and rest in it? And at least uh, regarding the vision of our church, I think it's restful because there's no great struggle to reinvent ourselves. It can be very exhausting to have to do that when you're always having to worry about being original, <clears throat> doing something novel and new and, and unique. And so just to be able to rest in what God has said, to be able to look to the scriptures as the foundation and say, this is what he wants and this is what we're going to do. We don't have to try to be wise in our own minds or estimation. The, the, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And so we can just look at what God has laid out for us and say, this is what we want to do the very best we can to build our church on this, to let it be the foundation and blueprint for us. So in our attempt to be biblical, I guess that's what I would say, let's try to be biblical instead of new or biblical instead of original or biblical instead of reinventing ourselves. And in our attempt to be biblical, I don't think we can do much better than looking at the example of the early church. And this brings us to lesson one. The early church sets a good example because of what they didn't have. The early church sets a good example because of what they didn't have. <clears throat> I did a search on Amazon for church growth books, and I saw 28,000 books on, on church growth. And last week I discussed the most well-known of these, probably The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, and I shared some of the concerns that I had with that book. And so if you wanted to go back and listen to last week's sermon, if you missed it, you can listen to the, the concerns I shared. Uh, and the early church didn't have any of these books. I would say they couldn't be influenced by them. They couldn't wonder about what man thought about how the church should grow. Second, the early church didn't have the example of other churches to follow. They couldn't look at what other churches were doing and say, this seemed to work for them, and so we'll go ahead and do that, not considering whether it's rooted or grounded in God's word or not. Maybe this church has grown exceptionally. They've experienced great numerical growth, and so we'll go ahead and try to copy what that church has done, do the same for ourselves. And so the early church, they couldn't do that. During last week's sermon, I also mentioned one of the churches that I feel like was uh, very prominent that, uh, as, as an example for others. Thousands of other churches followed Willow Creek and what they were doing because they hoped to ex experience the same numerical growth that Willow Creek had experienced under Bill Hybels. Uh, I shared some of the concerns that I had with that as well. I bet that you go back to the early church and they didn't have that. They couldn't be looking at the examples of other churches to follow. They just were left with what God was doing, what God was preaching through the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. And so that's what the early church had was that foundation that was laid by the apostles and prophets. And when we talk about the apostles and prophets, we're really talking about men that God was working supernaturally 
uh, through. And so I don't think you can get much better than that, than the things that those men were telling the, telling the church to do at that time. And so this sermon, it flows well from last Sunday's sermon, so let me briefly remind you of something. The title was Equip the Saints versus Being Seeker-Sensitive, and I had a lengthy discussion about why I don't think we should be seeker-sensitive, why instead we should focus on equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and I believe we're going to see pretty clearly in the following, in this morning's verses, that this was the case with the early church, that they were not seeker-sensitive, that instead they sought to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I know we didn't read this verse, but briefly look at verse 23 with me. Consider how seeker-sensitive this sounded. Or just to give you some context for a moment. Sorry, I should have maybe just give me your attention before you look down at this verse. So this is the day of Pentecost. Thousands have gathered uh, in Jerusalem for this, for one of the most famous, maybe second only to Passover or the Day of Atonement Jewish feast. 3,000 people are going to be saved. It says 3,000 people received the word, of, uh, the word of God or received the word that Peter was preaching, which tells us that there were some number that didn't, which tells us that there were probably even more than 3,000 that were present here. Peter has this opportunity. He's looking out at this crowd, many people confused about what they're seeing, the number of people, in particular, the number of people speaking in tongues. And so Peter is going to set them straight and let them know what exactly has occurred, which was that they, uh, you know, well, I don't even want to tell you. I want you to look at this verse, and you tell me if this sounds seeker-sensitive, okay? Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Go ahead and skip to verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So two times within a few short verses, you've got Peter accusing these people of murdering the Messiah that they have waited literally millenniums for. So I don't think that there could be a a stronger indictment he could bring against them or a worse accusation he could say, he could bring than you have crucified the Messiah that we have been spending all of this time uh, uh, waiting for. And so it definitely doesn't sound seeker-sensitive. And if you remember last week's sermon, lesson two, we don't want to be seeker-sensitive because we want unbelievers to be convicted. Why would we want unbelievers to be convicted? We want them convicted of their sin so that they see their need for a savior or for forgiveness the greatest enemy to salvation is self-righteousness and i say that from personal experience i i had spent a little over 20 years convinced of my righteousness because of my adherence to the sacraments i saw no real need for jesus i would say that i believed he died for my sins but if you were to press me i would say that i was going to go to heaven because i was a good person and so people need to be convicted of their sin they need to recognize their wretchedness and in inability to go to heaven in their own effort. And that's why we should desire, you know, more than anything that if unbelievers, if we're fortunate, when we're fortunate enough to have the unchurched or unbelievers join us, that they would be convicted of their sin and, and see their need for Christ. And so that's what Peter, we see take place here. He delivers this terrible accusation. I don't mean terrible in a, in a negative way. I mean ter- terrible in terms of its strength against these Jews. They're greatly convicted. Look what happens. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter, uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, I mean, I imagine them saying this just trembling, terrified, convinced now that they've, cru- I mean, imagine what that was like for these Jews to recognize that they have crucified their Messiah. They say, brothers, what shall we do? 
Now, whenever I read this account, I know I've said this before, maybe some of you might even have a note in your Bible from a time that I told you to write this there, that the Old Testament uh, contain, has prefigures or foreshadows New Testament truths or realities, and this is one of the clearest, that there was the physical act of circumcision throughout the Old Testament that always prefigured or foreshadowed the true and greater circumcision God wanted for his people, which was of the heart. And so that's what you finally see the Jews receiving here. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what's interesting is I would suspect most, if not every single Jew present when Peter said this was physically circumcised. But right here we see them receiving the true and greater circumcision that God desired for them, which was one of the heart which would allow them to love God and be reconciled to him. So we, we just see this Old Testament practice finally fulfilled at this moment uh, on, on Pentecost. But I want to ask you to think about something for a moment. What if Peter had been seeker sensitive? What might he have thought? Well, how can I make this crowd bigger, right? What will draw in more people? What will encourage them to want to come back next week? What do I need to ensure I avoid saying so that I don't offend anyone and discourage them from wanting to return next week? What, what would be entertaining for them? If I tell them something really critical, like they, like they crucified Jesus, that, that's not going to be very pleasant. So what, what would be something that they would find very enjoyable or pleasant instead? If he'd said anything like that or thought that, then we could pretty easily suspect none of these people would have been convicted and come to salvation this day. But when you have people feeling convicted, then they're receptive to doing what Peter tells them to do in verse 38. He says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them to repent, believe, be baptized, and then they'll receive the Holy Spirit, which is to say uh, the Holy Spirit will indwell them. They're spiritually dead. They'll be brought to life spiritually. I want to add, he did command them to be baptized. I just want to add, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but it is a natural enough response to salvation, or it's uh, a, a step that should follow so closely following conversion that it's included here. And this is one of those places that should encourage all of us to view, to view baptism as that step to take after we have been saved. And so I would say this, if you... Um, are convinced of your salvation, then you should be baptized. If you doubt your salvation, then you should not be baptized. But if you sit here and, and you haven't been baptized, yet you do believe that you are a believer, then that is something that you should seek, a command you should seek to see obeyed in your life. We see baptism taking place so soon following conversion that they're, and so close to it that there are actually some individuals, it's called baptism or regeneration. We, we reject this, this teaching but that believe people are saved when they are baptized, when the reality is it's just that baptism followed so closely in the book of Acts after conversion that it could look like that's when they were saved, but that's not the case. But again, it just reveals how important baptism is and how soon it should happen after conversion. Verse 39, Peter says, the promise, it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself when he says the promise, this is synonymous with the gospel. This is the, this is the promise of salvation itself. And so Peter said it's for the Jews, the children of the Jews, 
and for all those who are far off, which would refer to the Gentiles or any heathens or any pagans, because that's, the gospel is available to people as far from God as, as they might be. They can still be saved, which is the point that he's making here. What I want you to notice in particular is the end of the verse, Peter says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And this right here is a very concise explanation of how the church itself is built. The church is built when God calls people to himself. And this brings us to lesson two. Jesus builds the church. Jesus builds the church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus famously said, I will build my church. Fortunately, really early in uh, ministry, or maybe I hadn't even been a Christian yet, I was listening to a discussion someone was having with John MacArthur. There's a video of it, and John MacArthur was discussing why he wasn't seeker-sensitive, and he defended his position to not be seeker-sensitive, but instead to equip the saints for the work of the ministry by saying that Jesus said that he will build his church. Why would I want to compete with him? I thought that that was a very good explanation, that we can leave that up to him. We can trust him to be building his church. Psalm 127, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, then what? Those who build it are laboring in vain. And this means that we can try as hard as we want, but if God is not growing the church, then it's not going to grow. And I suspect if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you have shared the gospel with people, you have noticed that people fall into two categories. Maybe this is an oversimplification, but you've got those with receptive hearts or receptive soil for the seed and unreceptive hearts, and you recognize that no matter how hard you try, regardless of how articulate you are, no matter how accurate, biblically speaking, your words are, if those hearts have not been prepared to hear the gospel or receive the gospel from you, then there's no amount of words or truth you can share that's going to make any difference in their lives. And what's really interesting, if you want to see the best example of that, just read the Gospels and see the number of instances when God himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, was preaching to men, and they would not receive the truth from him. I mean, if you've ever felt discouraged when sharing the truth with people and they rejected it, just consider that God himself shared the truth with people and they rejected it. And so it just shows no matter how hard we try, unless God is doing the building or providing the spiritual growth, it's not going to happen. And I believe that's why the New Testament, which we can view as our instruction manual, has no passages or verses that discuss church growing the church numerically. You can't tell me if you go to this chapter and this verse, you'll see where God gives us instruction for growing the church numerically. There's nothing like that. And the reason is we're not supposed to focus on the numerical growth of the church. We leave that to God. And to be clear, this is not to minimize evangelism or outreach. You've heard me say many times that I'd love to see us grow in this area. I believe we were blessed when Pastor Nathan and Jill came in answer to prayer. I think they have helped us grow in this area. My point is simply that we focus on being faithful and sharing the gospel, and then God himself does the growing. That's, we, we equip the saints for the work of the ministry Sunday morning so that the saints or you can go out and then share the gospel with those that God has allowed in your life, but you have to trust that God is the one who provides the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, I don't think that anyone in all of human history has ever worked harder at sharing the gospel than Paul, 
And if there's anyone that's a close second, it could probably be Apollos. But even these two men, in all of their effort, recognize that if God uh, didn't provide the growth, that they would experience uh, absolutely no success. Mark Dever said, we acknowledge in humility that any growth that comes does not ultimately come from us. There are uh, several problems associated with focusing on numerical growth. I hope I made it clear last week we don't want to be seeker sensitive, and if you're going to focus on numerical growth, then inevitably you're going to be tempted to be seeker sensitive, concerned. You're not going to want to talk about certain things. You're not going to want to deal with certain things. You're not going to want to practice certain things, such as church discipline. You're not going to want to share certain things that you think won't be received well, even if some of those things are spelled out very clearly in Scripture. And so a simple way to say it is when, if we were to become, or if any church becomes consumed with numerical growth, inevitably there is the temptation to please man versus pleasing God. So Peter, he didn't try to please man, and look what happened. Verse 40, he says, it says, with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is one of those places that's kind of helpful to recognize in our, in our, reading of the Bible that were given highlights. The fact that it says, with many other words, Peter bore witness, tells us that his sermon was a lot longer than the, you know, 25 seconds it looks like to read it, right? If you'd be wrong if you were to look at Acts to read, you know, start your stopwatch, read Peter's sermon, and then say, wow, this is a very short sermon. It's imagine, um, you know, unbelievable how successful he was. No, God has just pulled out the parts of this sermon that he wants us to be familiar with. It's similar to Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3. You know, there, there are places in Scripture where you kind of look, and it's like surprising how short it is, and that's one of them. But we can suspect that John, Jesus might have talked, talked to him much longer than that, perhaps even hours of the night. But God has sovereignly pulled out those parts of the sermon that are most important for us to know. And in this case, we have, this, we have the same with his sermon here in Acts 2, but we're actually told there were many other words in this sermon, but just aren't recorded for us. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word, implying some didn't, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who received, they believed, they repented, they were baptized, received the Spirit, which is to say regenerated, brought to life spiritually, which means that the early church was saved, or excuse me, was filled with saved people. These 3,000 were regenerate. Before Pentecost, they were physically alive, spiritually dead. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwelt them. They're brought to life spiritually, and now they are saved people. I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament that I believe can illustrate a point that I want to make. In Judges 7, Gideon famously is going out to battle against the Midianites. He's got these 32,000 men with him, and he's going up against 125,000 Midianites. So he's outnumbered four to one, and it's going to get much worse. God said that everyone who was afraid was supposed to go home. Now, I can't say for sure why uh, that this is exactly what it means, but I tend to think that fear stands in contrast with faith, uh, and God can't use people who, have, who lack faith. We, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 11, Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews eleven six. it is impossible to please God without faith, which leads me to believe that God can't use us if we don't have faith. And these individuals who are fearful, God just says, you can go ahead and you can go home. And so right here, 22,000 men left. 
So this leaves Gideon with 10,000 men, 10,000 against 125,000, which means right now he's outnumbered um, 12 to 1. And then Gideon tells, or God tells Gideon, go ahead and take the men down to the water to get a drink. And they go down there, and it seems they separate into these two groups. There's some men that uh, remain upright, and it seems to probably bring the water in their hand to their mouth. And then there's another group that gets on all four, and they, they seem to lap the water like a, a dog would. And apparently when they get on all fours, I suspect they set down their weapons or their equipment. And so God says all of those people, I mean, I could be wrong, but perhaps the idea is that they didn't recognize they were in battle or something. And so God says these men that would get down on all fours, that they would not be alert, uh, conscious of an enemy that could attack at any time, you go ahead and send those, those men home. And it was 9,700 men that lapped water like dogs and they leave. So there's these 300 men left. And then God tells Gideon, and I'm wondering, you know, did Gideon see these two groups form and hope that the 300, the 300 were the ones who were going to be sent home, you know, and be left with the 9,700? But instead he gets 300, so at this point he's outnumbered 400 to 1. Here's the thing. Even when Gideon had 32,000 men, he always only had what? 300 soldiers. So God did nothing more than just to reveal what was there all the time. 22,000 of the men were not soldiers. They were terrified. 9,700 of them were not soldiers. They were, and it, it might not even be that much of a criticism of them. Perhaps they didn't know better, but God recognized that they weren't, were not soldiers who could go to battle. They were going to throw off this entire campaign. And so God just revealed what was there. And this can illustrate the case with churches. There could be churches with thousands of people in them, and at some point, God is going to reveal what's there. There might only be a few hundred people in that church. Uh, you know, on the day of judgment, there will be thousands of people who have attended churches throughout their lives who will stand before God, and it will be revealed that they were not Christians. Just to make this a little clearer, the church is only the believers who make up the body of Christ. So just, you probably heard the saying before that when people go to church, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. And so there could be churches, and you think of perhaps some of the more liberal ones, and I'm using the term church loosely, where people sit through those services for, you know, weeks and then months and then years. And I mean, I mean churches where, I don't know if some of you remember it, a couple weeks ago, I don't consider myself a prophet by any means, but I said it wouldn't be that long until we saw a transgender pastor. I think it was the very next week we've now seen our first transgender pastor. And so when you look at churches where people, these very liberal churches where you're, you're seeing whether homosexual pastors, or you're seeing uh, very liberal theology, where you're seeing um, individuals who will not preach on sin, it's just week after week, month after month of prosperity theology, it's highly doubtful that those people who center to that preaching for any length of time are actually Christians. And this is why I say that, because if the people in those churches became Christians, then what would happen? They would have the discernment to recognize that what they're participating in is wrong, that what they're hearing is false, and they need to remove themselves to a, a biblically ordered church that is preaching the Word of God. But for, in my opinion, for someone to sit there for that length of time would show such a lack of discernment that it's evidence that they do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, providing them with the discernment to recognize that what they're seeing and hearing is error. And so sometimes you kind of, and I'm not opposed to mega churches. I've never wanted to be one of those pastors that stands up and, com and condemns mega churches or condemns small churches. I, don't, I think that's a very amoral issue. There are some advantages larger churches have, 
And there are probably some disadvantages that they have. There are some wonderful things smaller churches can do that maybe larger churches couldn't in terms of the intimacy. I, like, for example, could you imagine at a larger church, let's say John MacArthur's church, that they're going to show the pictures of graduates, <laughs> you know, the pictures of new babies that are born or announced when people are married. So that's one of the nicer things about being part of a smaller church is the intimacy and the feel of family that we have. But at the same time, the men that I listen to, many of them, whether John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, the books that I read, the commentaries that I look at are generally from men who have megachurches, which shows you that I don't think poorly of churches just because they're large. But with that said, I have to think that some of these larger churches where there's very uh, liberal or unbiblical preaching, theology, female pastors embracing homosexuality, that the, stati- the number is probably not even any greater than it was in Gideon's day. You take some of those churches, and if they have 32,000 people in them, you can almost wonder if there's any more than 300 people in that church that are Christians, because if there are Christians, I highly doubt that they could remain there for any length of time without being so convicted about what they're seeing and hearing that they have to leave. Now, our vision for Woodland Christian Church, to get back to that, is simply that the people here would be Christians. I cannot imagine, literally, a stronger desire that a pastor would have for his church than that the people in his congregation would be saved, regenerate believers who have committed their lives to Christ. What could I as a pastor desire more than that? Anything else is secondary. Maybe you want a lot of people at prayer meetings. Maybe you want to see great spiritual growth. Maybe you want people with deep understanding of God's Word. Even all of those things fall second to people being Christians. So how much better would it be to to have even a smaller church with a large percentage of believers or everyone being believers versus a large church with a very small percentage of people that are being believers? And so really the vision for WCC, personally, I've never, I've always liked a more intimate church that feels feels like a family. Um, So I've never thought of myself as a mega church pastor. That that hasn't been something that ever seemed attractive to me. But what has always been attractive to me, whether my church was bigger or smaller, is that the people in that church would be, would be saved, would be Christians, have embraced the gospel, surrendered their lives to Christ. Now, after Peter preaches, and these 3,000 people join the church, I mean, in one day, 3,000 people are saved. This is the beginning of the church, this huge number of new believers, and they could not be sidetracked by what? They couldn't be sidetracked by uh, growth programs. They couldn't be sidetracked by man's wisdom. They could not be sidetracked by any programs or activities. They could not be, be sidetracked by what other churches were doing. They could not be sidetracked by anything that any man would think the church should do because the church is entirely being built by that foundation of apostles and prophets who are men that God is literally speaking through and working through. And so I just think you have this very pure this very filtered uh, church that is a great example for us to consider. And so you say, well, what were they doing then? What were they going to focus on if they were not focusing on numerical growth? Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Now, if you remember last week's sermon, the third lesson, we don't want to be seeker-sensitive because we want believers equipped and sanctified, And the early church was equipping and sanctifying believers by focusing on these four spiritual disciplines that are recorded in verse 42. Now, earlier, because you kind of, it kind of begs the question. I said, well, let's not focus on numerical growth, which begs the question, well, then what do we want to focus on? And I would say spiritual growth, or what we would call sanctification. That should be our focus. 
And notice the words, they devoted themselves. That's a strong word, isn't it? Devotion. Or some Bibles might say committed themselves to. So this is what they focused on, these four things, and we should too. And this brings us to lesson three. We want to equip the saints by devoting ourselves to the word, to fellowship, to communion, and to prayer. So Jesus said he'll build his church, and you can kind of hear that. And then maybe sit back and say, well, if Jesus is going to build the church, I don't have to do anything, right? No, that's definitely not the case. There's plenty for us to do, uh, plenty to keep us busy. Our responsibility is being faithful to the spiritual activities that the Lord wants us engaged in. Acts 2.42, it's always been a, a special verse, in my opinion, uh, 10, uh, maybe, maybe even t- over 10 years ago, I was pretty new here at the church, and I thought this could this could serve as a nice blueprint for us, I, and you can tell how, I mean, because I say this is a special verse to me, and you guys roll your eyes, and you're like, oh, you say that every Sunday, Pastor Scott. You know, maybe I do, but this is the only verse that I've ever asked us to put by our logo, right? So it's under our logo, Acts 2.42. I've always thought this could serve as a wonderful uh, blueprint for us. I think it describes the foundation of the early church, and it can serve as a foundation for us. And I want to share a quote with you that I mentioned last week. I'll say it quicker because you're familiar with it. Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek, he said that they had put millions of dollars into things that they believed, those were his words, that they believed were going to allow people to grow, but then they recognized that it did not produce spiritual growth. He said, we made a mistake. He said, when people became Christians, we should have taught them to take responsibility for themselves, become self-feeders, taught them to read their Bibles between services, and do the spiritual disciplines more aggressively on their own. Well, we would want to make sure that we don't make that same mistake, right? Obviously, we would want to be good stewards of God's finances, so we would hate to think that we're investing, well, for us it wouldn't be millions, but hundreds or worse, thousands of dollars in programs or activities that are not producing spiritual growth, but even just the, the wasted time, the wasted energy. We wouldn't want to do that. And so one of the wonderful things about focusing on the spiritual disciplines listed in this verse is that we can be convinced that they do lead to spiritual growth, that they will provide a spiritually healthy church for us. And the second thing that's very nice is they don't cost a lot of money, do they? The Word of God, fellowship, communion, prayer, we're not going to have to put forth hundreds or thousands of dollars to um, be practicing these disciplines. David Gesick said, everything we read about the power and the glory of the early church, it flowed from this foundation of the word, fellowship, communion, and prayer. Plenty of opinions about how to be healthy. I used to be pretty involved in uh, fitness and nutrition, and one of the, just to make your head spin, I mean, one day you're reading this article, you know, um, high fat, high protein, low carb, and the next day it's, it's high carb and high protein and low fat, and then the next day it's moderate carbs, moderate protein, high, you know, and it's like, you're just like, well, was it high, is it low, is it moderate, what is it, and all of these, and then you look at these guys, and they all look uh, like experts because they're so fit, you know, and you're thinking, okay, I'll follow this diet, and then you're following this one, and then you're swapping to this other one, and so there's all these different opinions about what, what it takes to be physically healthy, and the reason that I mention that is I don't think it's confusing to be spiritually healthy as a church. I'm not saying it's easy to be spiritually healthy as a church. There are definitely uh, challenges and difficulties, but I will say it shouldn't be confusing about what's needed to be spiritually healthy. If we focus on these four things, 
we become strong in these four areas, I believe we can have a spiritually healthy church. So let's briefly look at them. The first one, the Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine is just another name for the Word of God because it just means what the Apostles taught and the Apostles or what their doctrine was, and they taught the Word of God. Terry Johnson said, We have watched the biblical content of services shrink beyond visibility, but doesn't faith come by hearing the Word of God, according to Romans 10, 17? Aren't the spiritually dead born again by the living and abiding Word of God, 1 Peter 1, 23? Don't the people of God grow by the pure milk of God's Word, 1 Peter 2, 2? Then doesn't it matter what we read, preach, and sing in our services and in what quantities? Shouldn't we be alarmed when we see self-centered sermons replace biblical ones, uh, repetitious choruses replace biblical songs, and scripture reading disappear altogether from services? One of, I, one of the things I like about our logo, besides the fact that it has this open Bible here, is I kind of thought, well, that's what our services should look like. Hopefully, we have people that come to church, and then they have open Bibles on their laps that they're looking, that they're reading. From, I'm not the biggest fan of, um, you know, I hope I don't offend anyone if you've been coming to church and using an electronic device for your, for your uh, Bible, but I have always liked people flipping through their Bibles because we familiarize ourselves with them, the books of the Bible. As we, have you ever thought about that? You can develop, you can memorize the order of the books of the Bible, you can find things, and when you develop that familiarity from actually having a Bible on your lap that you're turning through, especially if you put your notes in there. So it's one other thing that I like with the logo, that it shows Bibles being opened. Hopefully that's what people see if they come in here and look at each of you. The second thing is fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship, it's koinonia, which is also translated in other places as distribution or contribution because it has the idea of sharing our lives with others. And I want to show you what the early church's koinonia looked like. Look at verse 44 for a moment. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's koinos. It's the root word in fellowship or koinonia and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, sometimes people understandably look at this. Sometimes people use it as a defense uh, of socialism, which would not be correct. Socialism would be uh, actually theft, to steal from one person to give to someone else, which is a far cry from people who voluntarily give out of hearts that have been stirred up to be generous because of what Christ has done for them. I mean, it's polar, polar opposite example. From this, it shows a ter- terrible ignorance to, use, to try to use this verse to defend socialism. But with that said, we could still wonder, well, should we do this then? I mean, we do see it here, and you are talking about the early church and what the early church did, so should, should this be part of our church culture too? Well, there are two reasons that we can understand that this is descriptive versus prescriptive. One reason is that we don't see other churches doing this. The church at Jerusalem, as it began, is the only church that we see this sort, this sort of um, sharing and selling, selling of possessions and sharing. But probably the bigger reason that really trumps the others is the epistles, which are our instruction letters for church life, never command this sort of behavior. But with that said, it can serve as a great picture of us or for us of what we should do with our lives as we share our lives with each other. Koinonia, it refers to the the commonality between us, the mutual responsibilities we have toward each other, 
exhorting each other, helping each other when there's a need, encouraging each other when there are struggles, uh, praying, I was so blessed. Um, I'm to be your pastor. I'm to shepherd you, but I went through some trials this past year with my dad's passing, the issues with my back, and so many of you were so kind to me, whether it was through messages, telling me you're praying for me, bringing our family meals, um, even just allowing me time with my family. So there were great ways you, were, you treated me wonderfully as your pastor when I was struggling, praying for each other, caring enough to rebuke each other, sharing our time, our energy, our homes with each other. One of the things that's nice, and I don't know if I, if I share this enough, but we're blessed, we the elders are blessed by your financial generosity because we've never as elders had to sit back when there's been a financial need or even when our missionaries have, have asked for something and had to say, you know, I don't know if we have the money for this. I don't know if we can give this much because then maybe we don't have enough in our savings. And so your financial generosity to the church allows us to meet the needs not just of our missionaries, but other people in the church. Sometimes people, through no fault of their own experience, financially difficult times, we've learned of it, and then we're able to give those people, you know, sometimes uh, thousands of dollars to see them through that need because we were convinced that it was, it was through, they weren't being lazy, it was through no, no fault of their own. So thank you for letting us share financially with others. Now, when I was in the military, there was a little bit of water survival training that I engaged in. And there's one time that I can remember, all of us were in this raft, and they were telling us how if we were ever stuck at sea, and we were in a raft, how we were supposed to survive. And the, one of the things that I remember pretty clearly is that when you're, we were in this raft together, what one person in this raft experienced, everyone in this raft was going to experience. And I think you even see some biblical examples of that. Do you remember when Jonah was in the ship? And whatever Jonah experiences in that ship, everyone was going to experience in that ship. What about when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus? They're experiencing this terrible storm. The water seems to be seeping into the boat. They think they're going to drown. Everyone is going through the exact same thing. Whatever one man went through, they all went through. And that's fellowship. Fellowship is fellows in a ship. When one person goes through it, we all go through it. And, and that's one of the reasons why we like to put up pictures of our graduates or pictures of our newborn babies because we want to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is why we share certain prayer requests because we want to mourn with those who mourn. So anytime there's a great blessing that one person in the church experiences, there's a sense in which we all get to experience it. When there is a great trial, whether it's the loss of a loved one or whether it's a sickness or, wh or whether it's, uh, you know, so some painful situation that all of us are able to shoulder some of that and go through that together. And that is a really wonderful thing to, to feel like that load is being evenly distributed among your brothers and sisters who are going through it with you. The third thing, and, uh, which is really the heart of fellowship, the third is breaking of bread. This is not talking about fellowship. This is not talking about having meals together. Having meals together would be under fellowship. This is talking about communion. You just take your mind to the Lord's Supper when, or the institution of the Lord's Supper when Jesus, you know, broke the bread, gave it to the disciples, and said, this is, this is my body. So breaking a bread is referring to communion. One of the other things I like about our logo is the cross on there. It is a reminder to us of what Jesus has done, and then every week when we celebrate communion, we are reminded through our worship service what uh, Christ has done for us. Now, I'll just tell you, I did not like that I was sh being shaped, sadly, by my previous church experience versus being shaped by the Word of God. The 
previous churches I attended, although I think, I think that they were uh, wonderful churches in many respects, they celebrated communion monthly, which I liked because I was coming out of a religious background that celebrated communion weekly. And so then I come to Woodland Christian Church and they're celebrating communion weekly. And I thought, I don't like this at all. This reminds me too much of Catholicism. And so sadly, you know, I wasn't allowing scripture to determine um, my beliefs for me. Acts 20 verse 7 pretty clearly seems to indicate that the church was celebrating communion weekly. The writings of the early church father seems to indicate that they celebrated um, communion weekly. Some people say, well, Jesus says as often as you do this or as frequently as you do this, and they'll say that doesn't really imply how often we would do it. Well, I will say this, the fact that Jesus said as often as you do this or as frequently as you do this implies that we would do it often and frequently. And so I'm thankful to, for each week to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and how that facilitates our unity. That's what our faith is built around, his sacrifice. Now, fourth, the prayers. The context of this word is the prayer time of the church, corporate prayer time. So I'm not going to focus on whether we're praying enough in our private lives or even praying enough as families. I would say that this is one of the weak areas for our, probably of the four, the, the weakest or the one I would really love to see us experience the most growth. It seems to me that there are three opportunities for corporate prayer in our church. At the conclusion of most home fellowships, and, and I hope all of you have joined a home fellowship, after the evening service, we usually have a time of prayer, take prayer requests, and provide updates about people. But the primary time of corporate prayer for our church is uh, Sunday mornings. We're going to be reopening on July 4th, Tentatively, that's the expectation. We will have our prayer time at 9 a.m. and then Sunday school at 9.30. Now, I'm not familiar with all of your lives, and if you don't have the bandwidth because of time or other things, you don't have the margin in your life to come to the Sunday morning prayer time, then you should feel um, complete liberty not attending. But I just invite you in the privacy of your own heart to consider whether God would have you come out Sunday morning to join us in prayer at 9 a.m. It's a pretty short prayer time, you know, 9 to maybe 9.20, and then we start getting ready for Sunday school. There, ha there were some times before everything happened with COVID when our prayer meeting in the Ed building was um, getting packed enough that people were having to stand up and it was becoming uncomfortable, which I thought was a wonderful thing, because then I thought, well, maybe at some point we're going to be able to move over to the fellowship hall. We'll get big enough that our prayer meeting has to go over there, and then we can just be in there and go right from the prayer meeting to, to the Sunday school hour. So I would just invite you, especially the fathers of the homes, consider whether God might have you come and join us for our prayer time. With that said, let me back up and share something that uh, might be an incentive. Romans 12, 7, it says, let, let him, if your gift is teaching, then teach. And because I see teaching presented as a gift that some have, I believe I try to look and see who has the gift of teaching and then try to provide opportunities. I'd like to think that if you're, you believe you have the gift of teaching, and I've recognized that, that I've probably reached out to you. I'll usually ask people, because many people will want to be servants, and I'll say, would you like to teach or preach? And, the, and, and then I kind of try to distinguish whether they're willing or wanting to, because uh, we have enough people that I don't have to provide opportunities if someone's just willing, but if someone wants to teach or preach, then I'll usually, and we believe they have that gifting, I'll try to provide that opportunity. Well, my whole reason for saying that is there's no verse that says if your gift is praying, then pray. We don't sit and say, well, I think he's got the gift of teaching, and he does, and he's got the gift of prayer. Why is there no verse saying if your gift is praying, then pray? 
You guys would know this, right? I mean, it's just not a gift. <laughs> it's, it's a command. It's for all of us. We should all be praying. And so even if you don't come Sunday mornings, I'm sure you're all praying in your homes, but it seems to me that God does want us praying corporately. Thank you for those if you're participating in home fellowships and other times. But again, just consider whether God might have you come out um, Sunday morning because there's this joke, and it's kind of a sad one because of how uh, true I think it actually is, that if you ever want to have a poorly attended church event, then have what? Yeah, have a prayer meeting. Uh, Melvin Tinker said, prayer is very hard work. And I agree with that. Prayer is, I don't pray enough. Prayer is a weakness in my life. I have to repeatedly tell myself that the, that the woodsman is not losing time when he's sharpening his axe, right? Because I have all these things to do. And whenever I'm praying, I just feel like I'm not getting them done, you know? And so I have to, I'm weak in this area too. You can even pray for me to grow in the area of prayer. But Melvin Tinker said, prayer is very hard work. Why else is the prayer meeting the worst attended meeting in any church? But that is where the battle is. Now, as we come to the end of these sermons on the vision for WCC, I want to conclude by trying to tie all this together. So first we had a sermon about vision itself and why we need vision as a church. And then we talked about what we don't want our vision to be for our church, that we don't want to be seeker-sensitive, but instead our vision is that we would equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We're going to focus our Sunday morning service on equipping the saints, or the focus of our Sunday morning service is primarily believers, um, secondarily unbelievers. So you would be equipped, and then you would take the gospel out to your neighborhoods and workplaces and the other people uh, that, you know, that God puts in your life that you interact with. And then in this morning's sermon, we saw how Peter convicted his listeners on Pentecost. They were cut to the heart, leading to their salvation, looking to how if we are fortunate or when we are fortunate enough to have unchurched people or unbelievers join us, that they would be convicted so that they could become believers. And then we discussed how Jesus is building the church. It is not our responsibility to focus on numerical growth. We just focus on faithfulness, uh, being faithful to the spiritual disciplines and activities that, that, the Lord, that our Lord wants our church engaged in. And I think that Acts 2.42 is a wonderful recipe for that. I just think it serves as a great blueprint for our church to be spiritually strong and healthy. And if we think about what we would want people to say about within Christian church, if they were to look on, and I'm sure every church has a certain, you know, perception and w what people might think when they look at our church. I don't, I don't hope people look and say, hey, that's the homeschooling church, or, or hey, that's the church, and then fill in the blank. It would be great if they said, hey, that's a church that's really strong on the Word of God, on fellowship, on communion and prayer. And so I would invite you to please be praying for our church as we go forward that we could be strong in these areas so that we would have a spiritually healthy church. Father, we thank you for the uh, blueprint in Scripture in this verse. We thank you for the early church and the example that it sets for us. I believe our desire isn't to be original or novel or unique. I believe our desire is to be biblical, and I pray you would honor that desire. Help us to follow your word, to walk in it, help help it us to build our church on it that it would be the foundation for our marriages for our families for our lives and for our church be with the elders especially help us in our shepherding uh, and to make the right decisions and burden each person in the church to grow in their in their um, commitment to these disciplines so for example if someone listens and they feel like they should be stronger in the word maybe they need to read the word more or stronger in fellowship they need to be more active in the church body or stronger in communion. They're not partaking in a worthy manner. They don't take it seriously enough. 
or stronger when it comes to prayer. They need to, they need to pray more and support the corporate prayer time in the church. Just make that clear, Lord, how we can grow in these areas. We thank you for this time. Be with, be with us um, throughout the rest of this day, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.